Father, we long that you would convince us afresh, not just of the, the reality of the resurrection, but also what it means for a people like us living nearly 2,000 years later. Help us to see that the daily truth, our daily need of the, resur- of the resurrection. In your son's name we pray. Amen. A few years ago, um, the now deceased journalist writing for the Times, Bernard Levin, um, wrote a very striking article. It went like this. Would my readers kindly note that when I have finished this column, I shall be on my way to Christmas Island, never to return. My choice is made in the belief that it is the most remote, inhabited place in the world. I've been told that only one ship goes there and only once a year. I've already been in contact with the postmaster and he has promised to burn any letters addressed to me. And what, you ask, has brought about this powerful urge to leave? There's yet another bundle of papers from Amnesty International that have landed on my desk. He finished his article like this. How much wickedness can the world stand? It's not a cry of despair, but a wish to know, because I now begin to believe that at some point the world will be drowned in evil, and evil will drown the world. It's a striking article, isn't it? It's very honest. See, his issue, his issue is the brokenness of the world. He wants to run away can't cope. Here is a man who lacked hope. But I take it he's not on his own in this, this lack of hope. In many ways, ours is a hopeless world. People are perhaps increasingly scratching their heads, asking, well, what is the answer? As Pat was praying, even just this last week, bombs in Brussels, over 30 dead, hundreds injured, and apparently enough raw material to make many, many more bombs were found. People scratch their heads in the eyes of many. People are broken, sure, but we're basically good. We just make bad choices. And so how do you account for this kind of terrorism? According to Wikipedia, shockingly, it's almost a weekly occurrence now. We may not hear about it all. Hope seems to have gone. What's the answer? And so put yourself with me into the shoes of the disciples on Easter Saturday. Confusion, despair, fear. What had happened? Had they backed the wrong horse? The one who said he was the answer. The one who said he was God's king. The one who they had given up everything for, they had seen on the Friday before their own eyes, beaten, stripped, nailed, hung to a cross. And before their own eyes, they see him die. What have the last three years been about? What have they been for? Hopeless on the Saturday. But then comes Sunday. And this Easter Sunday, we have the answer for Bernard Levin. We have the answer for those who are hopeless. Because we, as Christians, serve a, serve a man who has defeated death. Now, what kind of hope is it? 
At the moment, I am wearing a yellow band on my wrist. Anybody know what that's for? Anyone at all? It's just me, isn't it? Next Sunday, Oxford United are playing at Wembley against Barnsley in the final of the Johnson's Paint Trophy. (laughs) And I am hopeful that they will win. And I have a yellow band to prove it. Trouble is, Barnsley are in the league above them and doing quite well. So we'll see how it goes. But but you see, as Christians who have a hope, we're not... It's not hope based on imagination or what we would like to happen or what we wish for. But it's hope based on fact. It's hope based on the resurrection. So if you'll turn up 1 Corinthians 15 with me and verses 20 to 28 this morning, as Laura read for us, just two very simple points for us to latch onto from these eight verses. The first one, if you're a kind of note taker, Jesus is the first of many. The second is Jesus is the king of all. Verse 20. If you like, these are the so what's of the resurrection. What does it mean for us? So verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Now we're jumping in halfway through an argument that Paul is making to the Corinthian church. He's spelling out for them that despite what some are saying within the church, Jesus was, in fact, bodily resurrected. The apostles witnessed it, he says. You can trust them. You can trust 500 who were there to see it. And he says, if it didn't happen, if it didn't happen, well, this isn't just a sort of add-on for the faith. This is the foundation of our faith. He says, we're believing and, and telling lives ourselves. We're still in our sins. We're still separated from God. When we die, we simply rot, he says. But then zoom in on verse 20. Christ has indeed been raised, Paul says. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And his argument goes, just as through one man, Adam, sin and death came into the world, as mankind said, no, God, we're going without you. We walk out on him. We say, no, thank you, God. So through one man, Christ, salvation and resurrection life comes into the world for those who are in him, verse 22. That in him phrase is an important one for Paul. It's kind of theological shorthand to say, for those who trust Jesus, you are eternally stuck to him. It is inseparable. You're entwined to him forever. Just as he died on the Friday, so in Christ you, Christian, died on the Friday. Just as he was raised again on the Sunday, so you, Christian, will be raised again with him. You have resurrection life now. And and this Christ being raised from the dead, Easter Sunday event is a once and for all event. But it changes the nature of reality, Paul says. Because it means there's hope now. It means that death does not have the final say. That's what he means when he talks about first fruits. It's there in verse 20. You get it in 23 as well. 
Allotments, I'm told, are pretty quiet at this time of the year. Even in East Oxford, allotments are quiet. I think it's really only spring cabbage season, but someone like Richard Weston will tell me afterwards if that's true. Imagine, though, with me, it's, it's nearly early summer. Imagine it's July. Things are warming up, and you come home with your first manky courgette. And what do you say as you come in through the front door with your manky courgette? You, you don't say, look, look, it's a courgette. You say, the courgettes are here. It's plural. Because one courgette means that many, many more will come. The one signifies the promise of more. Well, so Paul says Easter Sunday is a, is a guarantee. It's a demonstration of what is to come for the believer. Death is not the end. Because Jesus was raised again, so we have hope. And so verse 23, but each in turn, Christ the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. Sometimes the illustration again is used of, of a dam bursting. Picture it, a tower of brick and concrete and cement, the wall of water, hundreds of meters high even, pressed up against it. So much pressure, so much stress leaning in on this dam. And then maybe there's a tiny explosion or a tiny earthquake. And eventually a tiny dribble of water comes through the wall. Just one little drop leaks its way through and you watch it go down. You nearly miss it because it's tiny. It looks so weak. But keep watching. Because the tiny dribble becomes a tiny trickle which becomes a tiny jet which becomes a waterfall, and suddenly the wall begins to crumble. And the whole lot gives way. Essentially, one tiny single drop has pulled with it all those bits of water that it was linked with. And the dam has broken. And death has been defeated. Christ is the single drop. But keep watching, because the rest will come. Now, we're not immune from death. Many of us will be all too aware of that personally, whether we're feeling the, the strain ourselves of, of illness and aches and pains and trips to the hospital. It's the reality for some of us. Others maybe have experienced that reality in the lives of those we love and we care about. But as believers, we can think of death in a different way. It's why Paul uses the language of sleep. We, we read it and we don't think about it. We don't notice it anymore because it's so familiar. But I think three times in the passage, he, he uses this language of sleep when it comes to death. So verse 6, those who have fallen asleep. Verse 18, and those who have fallen asleep in Christ. Verse 20, the verse we're zooming in on, those who have fallen asleep. I'm a big fan of sleep. I enjoy sleep. Could do with more. I enjoy the thought of waking to a new morning, particularly when there's sunshine and it's spring like today, feeling rested with renewed energy, ready for what's to come. Sleep is not something to be scared of, and yet that is how the Lord wants his people to think of death. 
We're a people of hope. And so death is like sleep. One of my learnings for this week, as some of the staff team will tell you, is, is where the word cemetery comes from. I should have known this before, but non-Christians used to call them other things, but for the Christian it was a cemetery because it's, it's Latin for dormitory, which means a sleeping place, which means people will wake up. It's an appropriate name when we think of death for the Christian. It doesn't make us immune from death, but it means that we and those we love as we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, so we go with one who has gone before us, who has defeated death, one who has traveled the path already. Friends, if you're here this morning and you're whether you're a believer or not, and yet you feel hopeless. Maybe you still feel a bit like it's Easter Saturday in your life. Maybe it feels dark. Maybe you're struggling, you're wrestling, you're waiting. Take and digest and chew on these verses for this week. Maybe particularly verse 20. Why not commit it to memory? Meditate on it as you go about your week. Because Easter Sunday is real and because Jesus has really been raised and he really lives and it's a real hope, it's not a metaphor, not just an idea or a nice story that Christians sing to ourselves to, to help us get through the dark life. But Paul says it's real. He says Christ is the first fruits, the, the promise of more, the first courgette which means we know more is coming. He's defeated death. And so we can know that the dam of death has been broken. The first trickle has gone through and, and the wall has broken. And so death is like sleep, which for a world that is hopeless is a comfort. It means that we can talk about death. It doesn't have to be a taboo. It's a comfort for those of us who have lost friends, family, loved ones. We can be sure because they have died in Christ. So we can be hopeful because he is the first of many, but secondly, we can be hopeful because he is the king of all. And so maybe we say, well, this is all nice, this is all good, but my life is still hard and it still hurts. Why is it still so painful? Have a look at what he says, verse 24 to 26. Paul writes, then the end will come when he hands over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. So Paul is clear for us on two fronts, but it feels like there's a tension. It almost feels like there's a paradox going on. You can see, firstly, verse 25, Jesus reigns now. He has been raised again. He is, now a seat, he is now seated at the Father's right hand. He is in charge. And, but it's striking, isn't it? Because verse 24, he's still got work to do. He has not destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. Not yet. Not in, not in everyday reality for us. He will overthrow them when he comes back, finally. But for now, he allows them to oppose his rule. 
we're living in something of an overlap time where Jesus reigns, but people still suffer. The battle is won. It was won finally at the cross, but the defeat is guaranteed. But in these sinful bodies and in this sinful world, there are still skirmishes. It's still hard. Why does he allow that? Why does he do it that way? I'm not sure I completely know. I don't think the Bible gives us a complete watertight argument to the reality of suffering. Later in the chapter, he will say, verse 55, death has had its sting drawn from it, but we, we still have to go through it. We're not immune from it. Why does he do it this way? I take it each day as a gospel day. Each day around the world, his kingdom is growing as people bow the knee for the first time to King Jesus. I, I take it each day we are maturing and being made in Christ's likeness through the difficulties and the, the hardships of living in this world now. I'm not sure we can be completely sure why he does it this way. Why all dominion, authority and power have not finally yet been defeated before he hands the kingdom back to his father. We can be sure that one day he will do that. One day all that opposes God and his purposes, all that stands against him currently will be destroyed and done away with. It'll be gone forever. It will never feature in the existence or our experience of the new creation, it will be the unopposed reign of God forever. Can you imagine that for a moment? Imagine living in a world like that where all dominion, all authority, all power that oppose him are destroyed forever. Imagine watching the 10 o'clock news. Imagine living your daily life. There'll be no Satan. So no temptation. No doubting God. No falling again, no battles of obedience for us. No divisions or arguments or squabbling amongst the people of God. There'll be no more living in a culture where we feel like we're being squeezed, where we feel like we're going against the flow, where we feel very different and we feel that we stick out. A culture where sin is made to feel normal and where righteousness is made to feel weird. And that won't be the case anymore. No more living under governments that seek to squeeze the people of God or persecute the people of God. No more suicide bombs. No more death. No more tears. But we're so used to living in that kind of an existence. It will be strange, won't it? It will be weird. John Calvin famously said that we live in an envelope of death. I think that's a really profound phrase. When we're young, we don't believe it. We, we don't think it's true. And then we start to lose grandparents. And then we start to lose parents. And then we start to lose friends. And then those around us, and finally us. We have newborn babies in our church. We have people expecting babies. And yet, and it sounds slightly unkind, but they are born into an envelope of death. That will be the reality for them. It will be the reality for us. But verse 26 that enemy of death will one day be destroyed. 
that envelope will be gone. And, and that is such good news. That is the day we're waiting for, isn't it? It's the day that I long for. One person puts it like this. In heaven, there will be no envelope. There will be no dark horizon. There will be no physical or mental deterioration. There will be no pain or indignity. There will be no anticipation of death. No having to plan for death. No times of life dominated by the care of loved ones who are dying. There will be no separation or loss of those we love. And I look around and I see people in here for whom life is hard. That the envelope of death is all too real for some of us. Not theory. Or even maybe folk who can't be here today. Because of that envelope. We're waiting for verse 26, aren't we? We're waiting for death to be done away with. To be finally destroyed. For, for the battle to be over. And just look at what we'll be like when that day comes. Last couple of verses, verse 27 and 28. They're slightly complicated, so let me just try and untangle them as I read them for us. Verse 27, for he, that is God the Father, has put everything under his, that is Jesus' feet. And when it says that everything has been put under him, that is Jesus, it is clear this does not include God the Father himself who has put everything under Christ. When he's done this, then the Son himself will be made subject to him who has put everything under him so that God may be all in all. God the Father has handed creation to his Son for a time and he will hand it back again to God the Father when his work is done. But do you see how it ends? God the Father is going to be the ultimate eternal center of our attention. And, and Jesus' purpose is to bring everything finally under his Father's rule. His, his final goal is, end of verse 28, that the Father may be the, the unopposed ruler of everything. That he may be our ultimate treasure. That our ultimate source of purpose and satisfaction may be him. I was reading recently of a, of a book, to say I've not read it, but it's now on my wish list. It's a guy, by a guy called Julian Barnes, and it's called The History of the World in Ten and a Half Chapters. Has anyone read it? Okay, that's good. <laughs> but it finishes like this. It's the final chapter is a chapter called The Dream. And this guy has died and he's woken up in heaven and he's discovered that heaven is the kind of place where you can do whatever you want to. Anything you want. He meets all kinds of famous people. He eats all kinds of amazing food. He has all kinds of amazing experiences. And then it hits him. He's just gone on the golf course and had, a, had 18 holes in one. And he says to his chaperone, as he feels slightly frustrated with his experience, he says, it's as if golf is used up. He slowly realizes the heaven he's in won't actually ever satisfy him because he's at the center of it. It's a very profound and honest idea. Just as life without God won't ever ultimately satisfy, so a heaven 
without God won't ever ultimately satisfy. Do you see, when we're in the middle, we're never satisfied. Heaven's not going to be amazing because of all the good things we enjoy, although they will be good, and it won't be amazing because of all the bad things we won't have to deal with, although that also will be good. Heaven will be amazing because of end of verse 28, he is the one we were made for. And we will worship him with all that we are. St. Augustine said, you've, you've made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they can find rest in you. And we live in a restless world as people seek to find rest in all kinds of places. But Paul says Jesus' ultimate purpose is to get us to a place of perfect rest. A place where God may be all in all. That's the end game. Forever worshipping him as he is at the heart of everything. And so do you see why, as Christians, we have hope? We have hope because he is the first of many. He's the first fruit. He's the dam that's broken through death. He's the promise of more. But also he is the king, and he reigns now. He has ascended now. He's at the right hand of the Father now. But one day, everyone will see that. And then he will hand the creation back to the Father who will be at the center of everything and we shall have perfect rest. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you that you were raised again on the Sunday. Thank you that death has been defeated. Thank you that your people can have a true hope because of what you've done for us. Thank you that you are the first of many. Thank you that you are the promise of more. Thank you that death has been defeated. That damn wall has been smashed and crumbled. Thank you that death is just sleep. I thank you that you are king. And we pray that you would help us now as we live in this time, this envelope of death. As authorities and dominions and powers are still able to oppose you. Thank you that one day you will finally defeat them and hand the creation back to your father. As the new creation comes. But for now, will you keep us trusting you? Will you give us the strength that we need in the, in the midst of death to keep our eyes fixed on you? And we look forward to a time of that perfect rest. When our Father will be at the center of everything. He may be all in all. In his name we pray. Amen.